0: Phronesis,
1: Practical Wisdom with Scott Allen.
0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in this beautiful world. My name is Scott Allen, and I am the host of Phronesis, Practical Wisdom for Leaders. I am an associate professor of management at John Carroll University in Cleveland, Ohio, USA. I'm an author, an entrepreneur, a speaker, a nonprofit founder, and the host of two podcasts. I'm also a husband and dad of three. You just heard from Kate, my daughter, who wrote and performed the Phronesis intro. Phronesis offers a smart, fast-paced discussion on all things leadership. My guests are scholars and practitioners, and we cover timely, relevant topics and incorporate practical tips designed to help you make a difference in how you lead and live. Now, I am proud to share that Frenesis is the official podcast of the International Leadership Association, an association that is near and dear to my heart. ILA brings together leaders and those who teach, study, and develop leadership, advancing leadership knowledge and practice for a better world. Learn more at ilaglobalnetwork.org. If you like what we're up to, please click subscribe so you can stay up to date as we release new episodes each week. You can also share what we're up to with others. And now, today's show. Okay, everybody. Today on Phrenesis, we have Bruce Avolio, And this is a conversation that I have been looking forward to for a long time. Uh, Bruce, in front of you right now, I have Leadership development in balance. I have full, I'm going to go back, back to the day, full leadership development. And if I could be in the room with you, you would see my dog ears and my post-its and my markups. And uh, you are an individual who has for decades now just been incredibly prolific, And so I am so excited to have you with us today. For our listeners, uh, Bruce is at the University of Washington. He's a professor of management, and uh, he is the Mark Piggott Chair in Business Strategic Leadership. So Bruce, I'd love – so Akron, right? I'm in Cleveland, and so I don't know what was going on in the water in Akron, but maybe it was – the the water bob lord was was having you drink but david day bruce avoglio bob lord i mean so much incredible thinking has come out of that uh program i would love to hear a little bit about that if possible but how did you develop this interest and this passion for studying leadership could you take us back
1: sure um well, I was born in New York, oh, New York City. <laughs> okay, not that far back. Okay. Mama
0: always said I was influential on the playground. <laughs>
1: That's it. You just have to have a good mother.
0: That's it. <laughs>
1: Uh, Father,
0: we're going to go Zalesnick on us yeah, right now. Huh? Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. As fathers were vestigial structures, you know, we can we can hang around for a while, but we're <laughs> like the appendix, you know, or tonsils, you know. Eventually, if you get rid of, them, you can still, you know, move on. Yeah, <laughs> so if, if I go back to um, graduate school, actually a little before graduate school, um, I wouldn't say that you know I had this passion all my life to. Study leadership or observe leadership. Um, but I did find that I was interested in uh, early in high school, probably before high school, in reading things about um, people who have taken nations and other uh, organizations and, and organizations in, in directions that I would hope we could not see happen, but does. Um, yeah. and in particular, you know, my, parent, my my mother was from Poland and Jewish, and they immigrated to the United States. And like a lot of people that went through that experience, I just I had Linda Trevino actually in my class talking about both of her parents are Holocaust survivors. Um, but my grandparents came to New York, you know, and I grew up in that tradition. Even though my name's Avolio, and that's the other half is my Palermo father, Italian, so, uh, Southern Italian. Yeah. But I was very interested in, you know, how do how do places go wrong, you know, in terms of following leadership in these directions um, that, that that oftentimes lead to destruction. Yeah. So I started reading that stuff, and then I just, you know, didn't think about leadership for a while. Um when I got to college, um I didn't major in anything uh until my senior year because I really wanted to just explore things and didn't have any particular interest. Um and then my senior year I took a course in industrial psychology and I thought this is interesting, you know, I yeah. I, th- I think this is something I might be interested in pursuing. My girlfriend broke up with me. I thank her all the time. That led (laughs) me in my great career plan to the University of Akron, which was the only – I applied to two places. I got in at both, but it was a last-minute decision.
0: Yeah.
1: And I got in my 65 Rambo Classic, and I drove to Akron, Ohio. Wow. And I started there. And what was interesting about that is, in many ways, I was very lucky because the people that had gotten there – some of whom had come from the University of Rochester um, because the University of Rochester had shifted from being more behavioral to much more of an economically focused business school. Ah. And that has relevance because people like Gerald Barrett and Ralph Alexander, later Bob Lord, came on board from Carnegie Mellon and others, many others. Um, When they left and went to Akron, they decided that they were going to become the number one industrial psychology program. Yeah. And for the next five and a half years, we all went through the pain of doing that. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if you're going to get to the Super Bowl, you know what? It's going to be a lot of work. Yeah. And it was an incredible experience. And I wouldn't say I was interested in leadership um, at Akron. I was actually interested in development. Okay. Uh, And so was David and many other people because at Akron, there was this quirky professor who I love by the name of harvey Stearns, and harvey Stearns came out of uh, morgantown and this whole lifespan initiative was started Yeah, yeah. um k warner shy and paul balthus and others and i was like fascinated in my first class to hear that as you get older you get more different from each other yeah so You know, you have people who run marathons that are 95 years old and disappointed they didn't get a good time, and you got people who can who who are not even ambulatory. Yeah. So I I never realized that until that moment, and it triggered in me an interest in uh, looking at development, Mm. and that that kind of just incubated um, until pretty much my last year at Akron when I decided to go come back to New York and work at uh, SUNY Binghamton. And Bernie Bass was there. And Bernie Bass was actually at Rochester, so this is a long roundabout way. Oh, really? Saying that Bernie Bass went to Binghamton, Barrett, and others went to Akron. And when there was a job opening there, um, Barrett had contacted Bernie and said, you know, I have this guy, Bruce Savola, coming out. He's really interested in lifespan development. Would you be interested in... um, Bernie was. And so I yeah. ended up getting a job there. And wow. then that started the beginnings of being interested in leadership. Long, long
0: well, story. No, I, I love it. It's fun to hear that story. And I didn't realize that uh, Bass had been at Rochester at Simon. and yep. Okay. So that's really, really interesting. And this you just triggered something in me because you had had an interest early on also and was it was it in gerontology am, am i am i grabbing that from some unknown place or is that accurate
1: no well you've now brought me out into the open um <laughs> <laughs> because <clears throat> i've been very fortunate to work with some really great people of my career and um i've won certain awards you know from in the you know industrial organizational psychology from american psychological association And a lot of times people refer to me as an industrial psychologist, which is complicated enough for most people to understand because psychology and industry, how does that go together? Um, Just make people happy, right? Um, But um, I actually was the first industrial gerontological psychologist to come out of the first program focused on that. Uh, that I jointly developed, never do this as a doctoral student, because I I said five and a half years, and it was actually six, um, because we created a program that combined everything between lifespan development and, um, and industrial psychology. So that's really what my degree was in. So I'm a complete fake. I'm not an industrial psychologist. Um but um, <laughs> who cares at this point, right? <laughs> it's time Scott, it's, it's time to come out, you know.
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh. But well, I have to I, say it know, really
1: it, yeah, I'm sorry, it really benefited yeah. me because I had a very different frame of reference um in how I looked at leadership and you know, and people like David Day, who was a little bit behind me. Um, not much, you know. He had the same reference, and you know, a lot of things that I've read of his. It's like, man, I remember that discussion, and you know, or hearing that from some of the developmental people on our faculty, and and also the industrial. They actually, you know, it was a good good linkage there.
0: Well, it that interest it shines through in leadership development and balance, right? Where you're talking about live stream and how do you reflect on some of that content now
1: it's more complicated than i thought um, will you say more about that yeah um it deals with you know it gets down to the um neuronal level uh today you know looking at how uh the brain you know matures and how it develops and what experiences um, shape the way we process things and we still know a fraction you know people who really know this stuff the neuroscientists know some more about it than we do but but we are going to discover some things there that i think is really powerful as well as uh the heritability um, and and genetic part of it which is still um, from all the data uh, not the majority uh, actually probably a, a third at most and even there the geneticists say it's crazy to think about genetics separate from the engagement and environment and evolution and, um, and evolution is another piece of that that we tend to see in people things that have been put in early on before they existed those individuals so we can go back through time and see how some of these things get transported into our heritable heritable, uh, genetic structure and then eventually you know we see it as um, that's how you behave that's how you think that's how you emote Uh, so it's more complicated and then I haven't really included the context and that has been more of a revelation even since writing that book um, that the context is so important to how people evolve and engage all you got to do is see what's happened in this last year we have had this grand experiment and we don't know yet what the outcomes will be we don't know what's going to come out of this team zoom webex whatever environment and end up in the same room together Um, and so things like this have happened throughout history that are kind of jolts it's a whole nother level of complexity um, to this whole process of development. So it's it's more complex, um, although some things early on I have to say that I remember being in a meeting with a head of IBM training, which happened to be near Binghamton University. It's where IBM had their training facilities at the time. And I made the comment, why don't we start leadership training with the followers? Wouldn't it be easier for leaders if we train the followers first? <laughs> um that he didn't quite ask any follow-up questions of me <laughs> after that but frankly that has become a, a significant part of how we look at the whole development process of leadership you know the yeah. three-legged stool the leader of the followers peers and context yeah so that's what i mean by it's more complex so it's, yeah. it's definitely more complex
0: well, uh, Kellerman calls it, her, she calls it what, the leadership system. And I think we could, I don't know, disagree with this if you do, but we could probably go back to Fiedler where he's starting to look at, you know, a few different dimensions of everything. the And and so I've noticed that you've added in some, in some of your more recent work, some work on the context and also some more interaction with followers, right? Yeah, yeah. Talk Absolutely. a little bit more about, about the complexity of the individual. What I would love to do, one of the papers that you wrote, and I asked you in passing at a conference once. It, it was Avolio and Gibbons. But you all go deep into, you know, some Keegan and adult development. And how are you thinking about some of that work? You, you get into the Kuhnert and Lewis and some of that work. How are you thinking about some of that today? Is that uh, more complex too?
1: <laughs> well... It was complex when, even early on. You know that when I read Keegan's book, uh, who I've gotten to to, to meet and know a little bit through some conferences at Harvard, and he's he's a great scholar. Um, yeah, uh, I'm really a fan of his immunity to change work too. Yeah, uh, yes. so some really sm- uh, smart stuff about how you think about changing organizations. But in his book, in over your, in we're in over our head. I love the. Um, in the beginning, he has comment from his mother, which is basically, who could read this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't know this was what you wrote, but who could read it? It's, yeah. it's a little thick. It, yeah. It's a little <laughs> thick. So it started out complex, but it's dealing with what I would consider um, maybe still the holy grail you know, around leadership development. And that is our perspective-taking capacity and the way we construe things. And, you know, you look at, you know, Bob Lord's work and the arc of that over time and how much of that has gone into now um, those areas, including around uh, identity and people look at moral identity and all, all those sorts of things. Um, so I think for me, that has been sort of pivotal and has always kind of worried me that, you know, we're training at a level that might not be really tapping into that um, sort of underlying, um, you know, operating system that really, you know, we can change behaviors. That's there's no doubt we can change people's behavior, but to change that level at that level that changes everything—the choices people make, uh, or you know, the the decisions that they uh, pursue. And going back to what I first, where I first started, you know, how how do people construe creating a society where everyone but a certain group is the only group that's relevant, you know, and we've seen that throughout history. Um, we're seeing it unfold today in the world in so many different places um, that create conflicts. So to me, it's, it's, it's a really important piece the the challenge has always been how to measure it. And that's really tough. I've, you know, Carl came um, to Nebraska and trained us on the subject object interview um, it was very enlightening. I started, you know, going into meetings, judging people based upon what <laughs> stage they were at.
0: You're at stage so, two. So yeah. That wasn't. Yeah, yeah.
1: I thought you were at stage three. For Christ, you know, no, I guess not. <laughs> I start it. saying fair, unfair, right, wrong, good, bad, right. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But I've, you know, it's it's really always it, it's affected my thinking about when we go back to the hard stuff, the complex stuff that's one of the complex, really complex things is, you know, how do you develop that, not just moral framing, but the way people frame things and where does that come from? Um, And there's all sorts of places it comes from. Like sometimes it's just serendipity. Someone drops in and says something to you and you go, wow. And you think about it and it's 20 years later and you're still thinking about what that person said to you. Um, I use an example where I met a person at a conference with Desmond Tutu and afterwards I walked out. I never met her again. Only met her because I was sitting next to her as we walked out. She said, that was really amazing. There was so much love in the room. And she said, it's a really good time for me because I'm recovering from cancer. And then she turned and she said, but cancer is the best thing that ever happened to me. And then, I, and then she left. The crowd kind of enveloped her. And I was like, what? And I've heard people tell me that many times actually that there are certain things like that or cancer that people have gone through and if they survived it they said it's one of the best things and i'm like god God, can't leadership training be easier than that i mean but it does change people's frame of reference it rocks the world
0: yeah i i watched a ted talk Iger the other day and i'll put it in the show notes but Yes, it's the, some of those those moments that facilitate what Mezzarot would call it maybe a disorienting dilemma that can trans can that can foster or facilitate some of these transitions in levels. And you know, back to the context thing. I'd never thought of it this way before. I'd just love to get your your thoughts on this question, but When we think about the context, I had a really interesting conversation with a gentleman named Jonathan Reams. Jonathan is the editor-in-chief of the Integral Review, okay? And he's at uh, the Norwegian University of Science and Technology. And we were talking about some of the differences between the states and his experience in in Norway. But he was talking about a pretty intense focus nationally on developing the moral character of the citizens in some of these schools. And that really struck me when we think about the context, about how even our environment is training us to be seeing the world and viewing our experiences. It's starkly different than maybe what your average U.S. citizen experiences. So does the context in some ways facilitate or stunt our progression through those stages? And I, I think the answer would probably be yes. I mean that's possible at least. How do you think about that?
1: Well you know, when I've been asked <clears throat> how much time would you like to you know to invest in like if we're gonna have, bring you into do leadership training, how much time would you like to invest in uh in the training part? And I would say how many how much time can you afford and they would say oh well, i don't know today would be maybe you know if it, if you say a day or two it's a long <laughs> period of time i said well I, I would like to have that day or two in short segments over a year and my reason for saying that is because i think the context is so important to how people actually, their trajectory of development unfolds over time. So I think the context is really rich. Um, My former doctoral students from Nebraska published a paper in Academy Management Review looking at how um, people's development is shaped by how you look across boundaries. Um, And, and, you know, one good example of that is um, I think that there should be a requirement in the United States that people get a passport as well as have a birth certificate and a driver's license, and they're required to go ac- to other cultures um, at least once a year um, to see where we are right now in terms of the arc of our development, and uh, and understand that different cultures have very different ways of framing. And um, you know what Rachel wrote about was that there's, there's these is cross boundary experiences just like the trigger event i gave you that's you know it's kind of thinking outside of my boundary um really shape our perspective in fundamental ways and so many i don't know what the percentage is but it's pretty high in our country where people have never traveled other than going to a, a, a wedding in mexico somewhere where they're inside a, you know, a walled-in resort and they're interacting with all their family and friends and not really interacting at all in the culture. And I think that's a great example of how you kind of shape people's perspective in terms of the context. Meant um, You know, obviously, role models and, you know, all the Bandura's work about, you know, vicarious learning. How much vicarious learning... Accounts for, uh, how much does leadership development uh, 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 can be attributed to vicarious learning? I think a lot. I think a lot. Especially if you have one thing working, reflection, where you stop and think about something.
0: Yeah. Well, it's, it's, it, it makes me think of the statistic. I, I, I'm not sure if this is accurate. I'll, I'll put this in the show notes as well. I think the average U.S. citizen gets to just four states, let alone different countries. right? And there's opportunity there because that leads to a very secluded existence in whatever context we're embedded in. And and so I think, let's talk a little bit more about time. Sometimes when I think about this work in leader development, and you gave a a beautiful example of, you know, a, a, a company that says, well, we have a couple days. And sometimes when I step back and I think about what we're trying to accomplish in leader development, It, we we approach it at times like it's a cooking class. Like we're going to have a two-day cooking course and all of a sudden we're going to have a chef after that's done. And most of the course is us sitting in a room talking about cooking and knife skills, not actually practicing knife skills, just talking about the knife skills and the importance and the history of knife skills. (laughs) And so when you think about how we approach leader development, not having a practice field much of the time, or at least a practice field where we can receive coaching. If you go to some of the Ericsson, you know, deliberate practice type work, it's, there has to be a better way. There has to be a different way. Have you, have you been thinking about this work in new and innovative ways that have struck you in recent years, or are you still struggling with some of that puzzle of geez, how, you know, the military is probably the closest, where you have people embedded in this context for decades and you know they're continually in this place of growth depending on rank but when you step back and really think about what we're trying to do um time is invariable that we haven't necessarily figured out also because it requires that time how do you think about that
1: um well i think about it and several ways i'll give you one way as i I think there's a lot of potential here for innovation Um, some of it coming from other areas or fields Um, but you know one thing is like looking at this from a historical time perspective right um i remember someone in china telling me um back about 15 years ago you know we've been out of it for about 300 years but we're back (laughs) You know, and when you think about 300 years in our country, it's like, well, that's about all, you know, <laughs> um, that's about all we got. Um, but when you have that, that the the benefits of iterations of time historically, it, it, it gives you some perspectives that I don't know if we're around in a thousand years as a country. Um, and given the way the world has um, evolved, I'm not sure that is going to be the case uh, but we'll see um that we're going to have a different perspective about things we'll have gone through multiple iterations of events and situations that hopefully have evolved us you know into some something uh, as a more perfect union so to speak as we talk about here in our country um the innovative part so i think about a historical context I think my own personal history, you know, it's like I have this narrative and I think I've lived in this channel and it doesn't include yours until today. So I don't know what your historical context is and how they overlap with mine. And ours are both construed, right? History is construed. It's not as it happened. It's the way we've interpreted it. Um, And then I look at, you know, kind of the present time context and what's happening right now. And you know developmental psychologists talk about event dense periods in history, right? You know, so in the '60s there was a lot of things that were happening that were impacting institutions and in the way we saw things and so forth and so on. In the '70s, I don't know, we had bell bottoms and the spinners, and that was about it. And, you know, and then we went <laughs> then the '80s. You know, I got Led um, Zeppelin. That
0: was pretty good.
1: With, well, they were around the <laughs> '60s too, but. Uh, but but you know it's just like there are these periods of of events that the time is almost compressed. It's like it's happening at you so much. Like this year, okay, we've got pandemic, we've got multiple uh, social injustice movements happening at the same exact time, and then in the last month or two, we bring in um, the the Asian American experience, which has not been a very good history for us nor for them in this country and rightly so it's coming all these things are happening in this period of time and the and the and the the, bifurcation of the political system and etc etc so look at this and and so if i were to create a game what would it be um and how could i get everyone playing the game well the game right now is the world we're in Right, and we're all players in that game some of us have more resources than others and we could do things to make an impact what if we created something that was a simulation of that but still had the basic principles of gaming so if I were to create what I call a gamulation for engaging people in their own development what would that look like it would be a series of scenarios and challenges um Now, to go from pie in the sky dreaming, which I was always accused of in my elementary school, high school, that I was dreaming, not paying attention, Um, but now dreaming is (laughs) considered a strength, Um, and I envision a world in which we can teach people through gaming principles how they might be able to engage challenges working sometimes with not a few players but thousands of players millions of players so my um, and this is not pie in the sky we got an nsf grant national science foundation grant built an entrepreneurial gamulation taking people through the typical founders dilemmas that entrepreneurs love to regale you with oh i have failed three times in my you know, and like, did you do the same things the same way each time? Like, had one you know company with your friends and a second company with your friends, and a lot of times they make the same mistakes, um, the typical mistakes. So we developed that. We've developed now three or four of them, five now, for different companies, and we've ha- we've deployed them in universities. We've got one called Liberty Air, which is really based on Alaska Airlines' experience going through a complete transformation as an organization. And we modeled that, and then we say, play it. They wanted to see how other people would play the game they actually played in reality, the real leaders of Alaska, and we made it into a game and you and simulation. So that's one innovation. If we can create the kind of stickiness that games create for education, and it's being used in other areas as well. Um, it's being used in health. I mean, if you think about our lives right a lot of things are are driven by game like you know earning points for flying and i've had people say i'm going to spokane this weekend it's like where are you seeing family or friends no i'm just going there because i need one more leg in my i get mvp gold if i do (laughs) that
0: take a flight from seattle to spokane
1: it's it's, it's seattle (laughs) spokane to beautiful Spokane and then come back just because they can do that and get extra. So we've been looking at how to use gaming. In fact, before you came on uh, with this interview or podcast, um, I was writing, uh, finishing, you know, it's a 10-page paper that I'm using as a basis for discussion. Um, We have a naval command here um, just north of Seattle. It's where a lot of our nuclear subs are based and so forth. And they're doing a conference on mental health. And it's part of Dr. Biden's initiative to bring wellness and mental health to um, helping uh, families and service members. And so we're having a conference. And in that, I'm talking to them about some work we were doing on recovery from addiction. So here I am, this industrial psychologist, but really a gerontologist, lifespan development.
0: Who's working interested
1: in on, gaming? <laughs> is interested in gaming that knows <laughs> hardly anything about addiction. But now I've spent a lot of time, and I was actually, you mentioned Mezzaro um, I have his book right at my desk because I've been looking at transformative learning in contexts where you're dealing with addiction, um, suicide, things like that. Because the mental health field is overwhelmed to say the least. And there's no way we can produce enough mental health experts. So one of the proposals we have is uh, that we have had um, in the works is to look at how we can use gamulations to bring in all of the stakeholders that can help that individual work through probably one of the most challenging uh, things that people can work through is getting off of some of these incredibly powerful drugs that is ruining... Lives is causing high rates of um, uh, community uh, pr- challenges, homelessness, people dying. Uh, it's just, you know, it's, so I look at that and I say, could gaming, isn't that kind of silly to talk about gaming? No, I mean, g- gaming is is something that is a good, it could be a good addiction, not a bad addiction. So that's one example.
0: Well, Well, it resonates with me in a lot of ways. So a passion topic of mine and people who listen to the podcast have heard me say this before are technologies enabling disruption so that we could go down that whole rabbit hole. Right. But outside of where I am right now, I'm in my basement and my son plays, he has two hours a day, right? That's, that's the limit on, on Fortnite. And so he has two hours a day. Well, what is he doing? He's putting on a headset. He's talking to five of his friends, and they are working as a team to accomplish some goal. And he has a couple other games that he's playing, but they're teams of five. And literally, he's not playing right now, but I can hear him from here coordinating, strategizing, planning, saying, good job. I mean, if we could harness that, I don't know if UW has a gaming team But it's really fascinating because I think that's an area. So your your notion of gamification, I I see it. I see it very, very clearly because I think you're exactly right. And I I co-founded a leadership competition about, well, it was in 2015. And this spring, we had 33 teams from across North America get online, 310 people, two judges per team, uh, the one judge was both judges were looking at process. We did the Everest simulation, Roberto and Edmondson, and so we had a team engage in that simulation. They had a process score based on a rubric we'd kind of developed based on the curriculum, and you would be you would be just it smiling how into the, this experience the students get because it's immersive and because they know that they're competing with other schools from across Canada or the U.S. and it's pretty fun. So the gamification, yes, I get it. And why do people practice? I think an Achilles heel of our work is that, well, where do people practice leadership? Practice. You have you have people in organizations leading right now, but oftentimes if we go to the Ericsson stuff, they aren't necessarily getting coaching and feedback. They might be practicing the wrong stuff over and over and over and not getting that that data and that feedback. So we're trying to create a practice field. And what does it mean to coach leadership? Or what does it mean to practice leadership? So we're dipping our toes in that. But the gamification, why do people practice? To compete or to perform? That's why I practice the cello. That's why I practice football. And when we think about the time that people give to football versus really developing their leadership skills, it's what? thousands of times more time (laughs) so i love i love this whole stream and and how can technology and how can we leverage technology to help facilitate that learning right
1: yeah so can we make it as sticky as Fortnite? um the answer is yes we've demonstrated that i mean sim city is an example for example as one example in fact one of the people who developed that with his friends um his name it's called aj um he works with us on these game relations he also worked with um lucas films um on the ranch on star wars originally some of that and he also Worked at Microsoft and he was the head of Xbox in Asia. So he brings together, he he and some of the other people I'm working with, they bring together uh, a wealth of experience that allows us to say, we bring constructs into play and they put the context into perspective. And then you pull those things together and try to keep it interesting. Um, you could reinvent just about everything related to assessment and development. Um, for example, certification exams, which just every year, like a real estate broker has to do a certification exam, and they hate them. What, what if they said, I can't wait to do this year's to see what it's like?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Th-
1: this, is, this is kind of you know, doing what we say all the time in business schools to be disruptive in terms of industries, this could be very disruptive at every level. And I think it's gaining more traction. You know, you're seeing it in use with kids on on the autism spectrum um, now in terms of uh, using gaming and other other approaches. Uh, We have something that was developed here serendipitously called Snow World for a burn clinic, um, where when people come to this clinic, usually, you know, we're one of the we're the first in the world to create a burn clinic, among a lot of other firsts at the university's med school. And when people come there, one of the worst parts of it, beyond being horribly burned, is when they have to take the bandages off and they have to give people morphine because it's so painful. Someone got this idea based on sort of distraction theory. If someone was playing a game while that was happening, I wonder what the experience would be in terms of pain. And so Snow World, if you look it up, um, is a game that people can play so they could be playing hockey or throwing snowballs. And in that environment, they're imagining a whole different, not the heat and all the things that went along with the burns, but a completely different environment. And they've been able to reduce the morphine levels um, in patients, which actually helps them recover more quickly to get them off that. And so that's an example of, you know, if you went in and said a game for that, it's a it's serious business, but, um, you can gamify anything.
0: Yeah. Yep. And, and we could align with things that already have a lot of energy, but I, I, but yes, I mean, you, you add a VR or an AR component to that experience for the students or for the, not the students, but the burn victims who are in that. And all of a sudden, yes, that distraction, uh,
1: this is it is a virtual experience for them. It's an embedded experience. Our stuff is not yet. Um, we're trying to keep it really simple and accessible um, to people because we don't think that techno that technology is there yet to be able to do that. Although I've talked to a lot of VR and, and, and of course Microsoft's heavily into the augmented. Um, that I think that's probably going to be the way it's going to go. VR will be kind of the stepping stone to that.
0: Well, when we get the holodeck. That'll yeah. that, that'll be yep. that'll be awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yep, It's coming, I'm sure. It's probably here already, we don't know.
0: It, so. Bruce, I, I want to honor your time and we've been going for about 40 minutes. So thank you so much. I, I always end off the podcast by just asking guests what they're listening to, what they're streaming, what they're reading. It could have to do with leadership. It doesn't have anything to do with leadership. Uh, what has caught your attention in recent much months?
1: Well, I'm a I'm now I'm a blink addict. So I've been listening to blinks, so lots of different books. Um, the series I listened to a couple days ago at the gym was about to, how, do, how do societies become totalitarian, and what they do is they do like a three-minute synopsis, and there's six or seven blinks where you cover maybe three or four different books or uh, other areas, you know, domains of knowledge. Um, so I've been really interested in that. And then I'm um, reading about, uh, since I lived in um, Akron, Ohio, uh, and I came from New York, uh, Bruce Springsteen, you know, the two places he was probably most popular was either New York, New Jersey, or Cleveland, very very popular um and we, we've always been big fans but reading his biography so i read a lot of biographies uh of people because it's interesting also colleagues at uh, uh door uh, institute down at uh rice university um they just put together a book called the leadership reckoning which i think is going to it's getting a lot of um let's say press like national press but it will because it's challenging the assumption that we actually develop leaders when we say it's in our mission and so you know it's like prove it so um i think i'm on the faculty advisory board for it and i've always been a proponent if we you know if we say we're doing it we should be measuring how we're doing it and that's that's the Tom Cole. That's who I had met at West Point actually, um, when he was there in the Behavioral Science Department. <clears throat> but so those are the kind of things looking at right
0: now. Yeah, and I think I I, I took a look last summer for a paper. It was twenty three of twenty five of the top business schools. So you know that that we develop leaders. It's in the mission, vision, or their core principles. And I haven't seen the data yet from. <laughs> You know, that's that's, uh, uh, backing up a lot of those assertions and and how it's defined even, right? One class? Really, that one class develops the leaders? Wow, that's great.
1: Usually what the deans would, and many of them are admitting this, usually what they will say is this is what we offer, whether it has the effects we think it has. By the way, it's not just the business schools. It's also the universities, most universities say that they in their mission they're developing leaders and that may be true but in what what ways and and so and they're taking a slice of it at rice and uh the door is John and Andor so uh, they're, they they uh, have endowed uh this initiative with quite a bit of money um this is a, one of many things they're doing actually they're taking a coaching approach
0: yeah, um, I read that. So it's I about a third
1: of the students now uh, opt into coaching, and opt-in is important because they want they want to do it, or they want they feel it's important to do for whatever reason.
0: Well, Bruce, thank you so much for your time today. I hope you come back. We can talk. We can go deep into gamification. Literally, as as we are finishing this podcast, my son has gotten downstairs. He started his two hours, <laughs> and he's now coordinating teams in the other room. Right, right. <laughs> I kid you not. I kid you not. I mean, talk about sticky. That is sticky. And if we could combine that with some learning and some intentionality around how they're behaving to coordinate their teams, that would be really cool stuff. That would be I, I, really cool stuff. I bet stuff.
1: you no one in the house had to tell him to do that. <laughs>
0: Uh, no, that was uh, – it's 3.19. In fact, he's a little early because it's, it's supposed to start at 3.30. <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm sure he's like that around his homework as well, right?
0: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. Yeah. All, all right, right, well, well thanks for all you do, sir. Thank, thank you for you. Yep. Uh, the influence you've had on me, that you've had on on uh, scores and scores and scores of scholars. And uh, your work is just – it's it's a wealth. It's a wealth, and I just really appreciate that. Thank you looking at the long lens of how humans develop and grow and take on new and different perspectives, see a larger perspective outside of maybe what Keegan would call level two that uh, really is inwardly focused and what's best for me. Uh, And how do we help human beings travel through those transitions? People like Bob Keegan, Carl Kuhnert, uh, Eigel, and, You know, of course, here we have uh, Bruce Avolio in this conversation spoke with Susan Murphy about the lifespan last year, David Day. This is a hot topic and it's an important topic because if we can figure out how to help humans learn, develop, and grow, and when we say develop, develop, (laughs) develop, and every one of us, I think that's a part of the work. And it's a part of the work for very, very important reasons because if you have someone working out of that level two, that's going to be a difficult leader to work with or for. And Jonathan Reams had mentioned a book called The Map. And I'm going to put that in the show notes for this episode as well. But I think it's critical. I think it's a really, really important piece of this whole conversation about developing leaders and leadership. And I would encourage listeners to purchase that book. And I'm going to try to get the authors on to phronesis and have a conversation, because I think it's a very, very important conversation to have. You know, the other thing that I'm reflecting on from our conversation was this whole notion of gamification, using game theory or gaming, Uh, Bruce called them gamulations. I think that's wonderful. And I see the energy and the enthusiasm my son has for that space. How do we leverage that? How do we leverage that natural energy for that space? In a certain population, obviously, but use that as an impetus for learning because I think it's a ripe space for learning. You have individuals who are working in teams and there's an opportunity there to utilize and explore gaming, gamification, simulation, immersive experiences in all kinds of different ways. So as you can tell my mind is swimming. I'm thinking a lot, reflecting a lot, exploring a lot and I hope each of you are as well. Thanks as always for listening. Take care. Be well. You, my friend, have just finished another episode of Phronesis: Practical Wisdom for Leaders. To get in touch with me, visit www.scottjallen.net or send me a note at scott at scottjallen.net. I can also be found on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Now, if you have feedback, I would love to hear it. And as always, thank you so much for listening to Phrenesis. If you like Phrenesis, I have a second podcast. It's called the Captovation Podcast. That's with an O, -o Captovation podcast where i speak with experts on the topic of designing and delivering incredible presentations and now kate's twin sister emily with the outro
1: you've been listening to phronesis practical wisdom with scott allen